Welcome back, listener. And if this is your first time, thanks for checking us out. I'm your host, Chris Connor. Hey, it's a treat for me to interview so many interesting people with incredible stories to share. Today is no exception. We're not going to waste any time. Let's jump right into it. Alexander Titus is VP of Strategy and Computational Sciences at Colossal Biosciences. Titus, welcome. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. So for people who aren't familiar, uh, tell us a little bit about Colossal Biosciences. Yeah, so Colossal is a de-extinction company. We're actually the first de-extinction company, and we're founded in 2021. Um, spun out of an idea that George Church at Harvard Medical School has had for a long time about, can we de-extinct the woolly mammoth? Can we actually take and use genetic engineering to bring species that are no longer here back? And I first was introduced to Colossal through a friend who um, told me about all the cool stuff they were trying to do and all the computer science. I'm a computer scientist by training and all the bioinformatics kind of stuff they were trying to do. And I thought they were crazy. And once I talked to them, I thought they were crazy and I had to be a part of it. So we've got a big mission, woolly mammoth, Tasmanian tiger, and the dodo are the big, big targets right now. Yeah, we're going to talk about those. So, did you have any bioinformatics experience? I guess got to ask. Yeah, I yeah, have any. yeah. So, I my background. I have a PhD in bioinformatics and machine learning. So, I'm kind of an AI plus bio uh, fanboy, if you will. Um, spent a lot of time working in that space. And at the time when I was first introduced to Colossal, I was working at Google, where I was leading a lot of the solution development for government and universities who are building bioinformatics tools for cloud computing. And that's really where I started getting involved with Colossal. I joined the advisory board um, for about eight months or so before eventually saying, you know what, Google's going to be here forever. Only one company is going to do this first, and I got to be a part of it. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, we're going to talk about the de-extinction project from a bunch of different angles, biology, computations, business. Why is this important in a global sense? So there we're going through one of the you know steepest losses of biodiversity globally that we've seen in any kind of recent history. And one of the challenges is that ecosystems are changing as our environment changes, species, whether it's because of a loss of environment or because of a, a human intervention, overhunting, things like that, species are going extinct. And one of the the original founding idea behind de-extincting the mammoth and is really going about what's called rewilding, where you actually release the animals back into the wild at some point. And the elephants are really fascinating because they're ecosystem engineers. So elephants, you know, today, whether they're from Africa or Asia, are really important keystone species in their ecosystems. And they truly engineer everything that's going on by churning up dirt, tearing out plants, all that kind of stuff. And the idea is by rewilding mammoths into the Arctic, there has been some really strong evidence that they could actually revitalize the Arctic. So there's this park in northern Siberia called Pleistocene Park that over the last 20 or so plus years has been showing that large mammals in an Arctic environment can actually revitalize part of that part of that ecosystem and at the same time keeping ground temperatures colder. And so from a global perspective, the Arctic is the largest source of uh, captured organic carbon in the world. And so if you can keep the permafrost from melting, 
then you can actually keep that carbon captured longer. So when people talk about the permafrost is melting, it's really bad for the environment. A lot of people don't realize that that is because that old organic material, dead plants and animals under there, you know, decompose and give off carbon. And so as you, as that off gases, then, you know, you have more carbon emissions, you have higher carbon concentrations, you end up with uh, you know, more impact on climate change. And so by having these large mammals in the Arctic, you can actually keep ground temperatures colder at depths that are somewhere 15 to 20 centimeters below ground and 9 to 10 C uh, colder. And so you actually slow that freezing. And this happens in part by, you know, the, ma- the large animals stir up the snow, expose the ground to, to the cold air. Um, elephants are really big ecosystem engineers, like I mentioned, so they could uproot trees that are drawing heat from from the atmosphere into the ground that are heating the heating the surface and so it's a it's a really big play at trying to deal with climate change yeah it's just it's interesting from beyond the climate change part just to appreciate the scale at which large animals other than humans manipulate the environment absolutely on a large scale itself. And I have to say, when I first heard about this, it was probably on the radio and it wasn't about Colossal or anything. And somebody mentioned bringing back the woolly mammoth. And I thought, why don't we spend our resources fixing the environment that let the woolly mammoth go extinct? But then when I heard about what you just told me, I go, oh, all right. Now I now I get it. Now I'm all in favor. So Yeah. Woolly mammoth, you mentioned the dodo and the Tasmanian tiger. You've already sort of made the case for the mammoth, and we'll talk about the dodo as well. What's the case on the Tasmanian tiger? So the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, is another keystone species from its uh, former ecosystem. So from from Tasmania and Australia, it was the apex predator of its ecosystem uh, when it existed. And for various reasons, it went extinct from overhunting. And so as that, that key, that apex predator was lost from its environment, again, the ecosystem really started to change. There started to be an overabundance of, of small wildlife, which led to an overgrazing, which is leading to increased risk, uh, from a, from a wildfire standpoint. And so again, these animals, the ecosystems we know today are very finely tuned balances. And you take one critical species out of there and everything starts to have some kind of most likely deleterious impact. And so the idea with that is again, rewilding. If you can reintroduce a keystone species to the environment and the thylacine went extinct in the 1930s, I think. Um, and so not that long ago, it's either late twenties or or thirties. Um, and it's not that long ago where this species disappeared. And so we're talking about over the course of a hundred years, there are pictures of the thylacine as that recently extinct. And so how do we revitalize the ecosystems that, that it was lost from. And again, it's from a rewilding idea. Now, yeah, the time period of its extinction was my next question. So now I'm going to go a little off track because I'm thinking of large animals and ecosystems and buffalo. Like what? I don't even know if I have a question other than you must have thought of it or now I'm thinking about it. Like I'm told that in the old days, couple hundred years ago, you could look across the prairies and see nothing but buffalo. I mean, literally couldn't see the ground. 
Um, and obviously they're not yet extinct. Right. But do you hear or think anything about should we have more grazing lands for buffalo? Would that make a difference? So I haven't thought through that one specifically, but in general, we do think through a lot of the conservation of existing species, of extant species. And so part of our work, a large part of our work is focused on de-extinction, but also a meaningful part of our work is focused on creating really advanced conservation programs for the species that do exist. And so we have partnerships, for example, with a number of different elephant conservation groups because elephants are the living relative of the mammoth. And so it's important to make sure that we keep uh, keep them around and the critical and keystone species of their ecosystems while we're working on the de-extinction of, of species like the mammoth or the Tasmanian tiger, things like that. And a lot of the technologies we're developing to be able to do that de-extinction is, can be directly applied to the conservation of, of existing species. There are plenty of reasons, whether it's infectious disease or loss of habitat, that species are going extinct. And so helping create ways for the extant species to be more resilient in their, in their ecosystems are really, really key. There's actually a really interesting article that came out in the MIT Tech Review recently where scientists engineered, and this is not what we, this is not us, but scientists have engineered, um, I, th I think it was alligators, alligator crocodile genes, uh, forgive me, I'm not knowing that detail, but into catfish, because oftentimes fish die under stress when they're being farmed. And so they can actually introduce genes that help them be more resilient in those farming conditions. And so they increase the, the survival rate of, of our food supplies and can all through the same kind of genetic engineering technologies that we are leveraging on the de-extinction side. I'm going to take a stab at this one. I know nothing, but this week I learned for another podcast about um, whole alligator blood is, is an important product. <laughs> and the reason is alligators are very resistant to infection, as you can imagine, because they're getting wounded and living in a swamp continually. Right. So I don't know if that's related. Then I'm I'm really going off track today. Uh, where was I going to go after the buffalo and de-extinction? It'll come back to me. But anyway, there was no. Oh, the northern white rhino. I lit. Um, I interviewed um, Gene Loring several years ago about that, and they have a project because apparently there are a couple of survivors in San Diego at the zoo, both male, but she's working on pluripotent stem cells with the hope of creating an, a viable egg at some point, I think, to bring back the, the white rhino. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reproductive technologies have been largely explored in, in humans, but have been much, they're underexplored in other species, and especially these species where the healthy breeding populations are declining dramatically. Uh, it's important to pay attention to those kind of areas. Yeah. All right, so you're going to learn a lot. I mean, this this is what's cool about a what I would call a, a very large project like yours um, with a broad scope. What kinds of things are we going to learn along the way aside from how to recreate a mammoth? That's really the reason that I ended up joining. I think that the de-extinction is so fascinating, but the technology we have to invent to get there is this mind blowing. I think the analogy to the space race is often overused, but in this case, 
I mean, we have, we have Tang and space blankets because of the space, space race. Who knows the kinds of things that we're going to end up with by becoming experts in the genetic engineering, uh, of, of mammals. One, one example, it's, we already spun off a software company last year. So about a year after being, after launching, you know, the amount of analysis we had to build, we had to build our own infrastructure. We had to build our own, our, you know, brilliant team of engineers to be able to design and develop this kind of technology. We realized that it was really valuable to the broader biotech ecosystem. And so form bio was formally launched last September and is focused on now taking the same bioinformatics powerhouse that we developed for our needs and bringing it to the cell and gene therapy industry. And so we're seeing that we're driving, driving the technology development from really unique requirements, right? De-extincting a mammoth is a unique set of technological challenges than someone's tackled before and can apply them to, to modern contemporary human health applications. And the reason that that's so transferable is you know, a lot of modern cell and gene therapy relies on very precise genetic engineering of the cells you're developing. And so if you can precisely target and, and do the engineering in one cell type, theoretically you can in another cell type. And so the idea is we continue to expand from there. And that's one of many technologies. We also have released some, you know, open source publications. My team in particular developed an interesting way to uh, use machine learning to unsupervised and actually read through and listen, listen through audio. And instead of having a, a manual annotator, someone who goes through and listens to something and Mark puts a little mark in their digital notebook, we can actually have an algorithm go through and say, there is a point of interest at all points through wherever this audio is. And so we have technology we develop into new companies. We have technology we develop and release open source. That collective suite of technologies that have to be built to make this a reality is game changing in itself. And then we're going to end up with a mammoth in yours and my lifetime. Yeah. Okay. So that was one of my next questions, but um, coming down the line, but we'll go to it now. The, the audio analysis. So this podcast all started based on curiosity about AI. So you say unsupervised, you're feeding it audio and right. it's saying, here's a new sound. Is that right? And then somebody goes to annotate those things and figures out what's present there or am I? Yeah, exactly. So instead of saying, you know, I need to have a human listener listen and say, oh, an elephant just trumpeted, you know, the, the unsupervised algorithm goes through and says, this was an event. Something happened in the audio here that was outside the norm. Someone should pay attention to this. And it helps focus people's time instead of having to listen to hours and you know hundreds of hours of just random jungle noises they can listen for that elephant trumpet or that gunshot or whatever it happens to be and that's the kind of thing that that we want to be able to get to because part of the challenge is you know technology certainly doesn't solve everything but it assists in a lot of things and so how do you effectively manage populations of say elephants in the wild without human intervention can we do um, different types of camera situations or passive audio monitoring and actually understand who's where and specifically which individuals and be able to understand their behavior their decision making there's a whole bunch of interesting questions that can be made to help more be better stewards of species like elephants yeah, those are the big biology problems. Now let's go to the, I don't want to say it's a small problem, but the 
problem of the microscopic. What's the strategy for recreating a mammoth from something in a dish? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. The way we start is really figuring out from a comparative genomic standpoint, what are the differences in these uh, in these species? And so the closest living relative to a mammoth is an Asian elephant, but they're evolutionarily divergent. And so how do we pay attention to which parts of the genome differ and understand what is the set of differences that could lead to, say, an elephant being hairy and cold tolerant and interested in living in the cold, things like that. But that's only the first step. The next step is figuring out which of those differences are actually meaningful because there could and most likely are a set of mutations over time that are just innocuous and didn't really have much to do with that. Or they're a response to more recent um, environmental conditions, but not actually related to the actual phenotype that we want to see. And phenotype, right? Genotype to phenotype. Your genotype is your genes. Your phenotype is how those express. So I have blonde hair and blue eyes. That's my phenotype, for example. Um, and so once we understand what the differences are and which differences are most likely to be relevant and important, and in a perfect world, rank ordered in importance, because genetic editing at scale, and by at scale, I mean high volumes of edits at once, is hard. And not currently, there is no current genetic editing, CRISPR or others, that are perfect and able to make hundreds or thousands of simultaneous edits at once. And so we need to be able to make sure that we make the right edits and we don't end up with off-target effects or edits that we don't want, because then maybe we end up with an elephant with two trunks and the blue hair, right? I'm being sarcastic for the, it's, it's not that easy. If it were that easy, it'd be, our job would be a lot easier. And then you take that and there's a whole other, like, then you figure out how to do somatic cell nuclear transfer and, you know, on and on to end up with ultimately an animal that, and the first animal is going to be its own, the only one. So it'll be the only mammoth. And so how do you make sure that you have the right place for that animal to be cared for and that then goes from science to science plus society. And there's a whole spectrum of things that, that you have to take into account. Yeah. So what do we know just out of curiosity about the genome of the mammoth? So I'm presuming there is mammoth DNA, right. but not perfect, but number of chromosomes can be identified. Yeah. So that we, the mammoth DNA is in a class of DNA we call ancient DNA. And ancient DNA has characteristics of, while, while DNA is really stable, it has characteristics of being pretty degraded, um, pretty low quality, short reads, which makes it really hard to assemble because if you don't have all the reads, right, you just have a huge number of likely assemblies. Also, the whole the genome in its entirety, rarely available. And so the... That's another thing. It's just the techniques required to effectively manage, manipulate, and analyze ancient DNA is a whole no set of poor data quality. You talked about AI. It's a sparse data problem, a poor data quality problem. And people love to say, you know, crap in, crap out from an AI model. But how do we build tools that that's not the truth? How do we get low quality DNA in, high quality scientific discovery out? And so that's, we spend a lot of time trying to 
overcome some of those challenges. Mammoths, though, they conveniently died in a freezer for us. It's not a minus 80, but it's at least, uh, they're better preserved than a species that went extinct elsewhere, and we have to look through museum specimens for DNA, for example. Right. So I, I'm not a cell biologist at all. My second cell biology conversation this week. You're going to be not even cells that you could look at and stain in some way and get a rough idea of chromosome composition. I, I expect it all to be degraded to a degree, but maybe you get lucky and see one that, oh. So there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly chromosomal information. I'm not the elephant expert or the mammoth expert to know the details on that, but there are no whole living cells. That's how you end up with cloning. It's cloning. You take a whole living cell and you figure out how to turn it into another whole living cell. You can't clone animals that no longer are alive because they have no longer living cells. So DNA is stable, but the whole tissue is not. And so that's one of the big challenges. Beth Shapiro, who's one of our advisors and is a big, big part of what we're doing, wrote a really interesting book called How to Clone a Mammoth. And that's where I started reading up about this. As soon as I started advising Colossal, I was like, I got to learn how to clone a mammoth if I'm going to be part of this. <laughs> and the, the moral of that story is you can't actually clone a mammoth. It's a much harder scientific problem. Yeah. I didn't expect any living cells, but I thought maybe some chunk of tissue that could be, was, if it was frozen, could be fixed and somehow looked at under a microscope. Well, there's, you certainly fish. can, but just the quality of, of the DNA is still poor. So there's lots we can learn. And again, I don't know the specific details of, of our mammoth biology, but we do plenty of analysis on it. And and there's plenty to be studied. But you know, I come from a background where I was studying cancer. And you know, the NIH has reams and reams of wonderfully curated, publicly available data that's high quality and all that kind of stuff. You don't get that in the ancient yeah. DNA world. I also just realized it went back 40 years to my education. You would have to capture a cell in meiosis to be able to count chromosomes where the chromosomes are condensed. Yeah. So now, yeah. Never mind. Um, all right. Let's talk about how this gets paid for because obviously there's some altruism. There's also concern about climate change, but no one is going to buy a woolly mammoth when you're done. So there's a business model. Form Bio might be one example of, all right, we create technology and people like that. What else? So a lot of it is, you know, honestly, outside of my pay grade, I'm, a, I'm one of the scientists side of things, um, but that we have a really interesting set of partnerships that have been developed are, I think that, I truly think that the IP that's being generated from here is going to be some of the most valuable um, so to your point, form is an example. There will be more. And, you know, we have in venture backed. So we have venture capital dollars that, that fund us to be able to tackle the things that we're trying to do. And a lot of that is because of the belief in, in the tools and techniques that we're, that we're building. Cause you know, venture capitalists want to see a really strong 10 X return on their investment, for example. Right. And so we're actively and always thinking about how how to monetize and how to create a sustainable business. Um, I spend more of my time on the science strategy than the business strategy side of things, but I know that the technology spinoffs is a big part of, of how we think about everything is how can we make sure that we have the highest impact 
for our with our with our technology investment and our investor dollars how do we make sure that we get the most benefit out of that yeah makes sense all right last question besides um the fact that it became recently extinct talk a little bit about what's attractive about the dodo a species that you know has become a pejorative term but has obviously real value the dodo is an interesting poster child for for extinction because you know we do use it as a pejorative term i thought they were little you know kind of like the ice age example of little tiny birds who were dumb enough to run off a cliff on their own but they're actually pretty good sized birds and so we have we don't understand a ton let me rephrase we do understand a ton about them from you know they were large flightless birds you know native to mauritius but you know, they, they went extinct again because of overhunting. Sailors showed up in the 1600s and hunted them to extinction. And so they create a really interesting, one, opportunity and challenge to work on birds, because birds are a different biological challenge than mammals. They are the heart and soul of de-extinction, if you will. Everyone has heard of a dodo or been called a dodo at some point, <laughs> one time or another. And so I think I think a big part of it is that kind of inspiration for what's possible, right? If you can, if you can help bring back uh, an animal that is really representative of, of a past time or an extinction event, then you, know, you really can move the needle on, on the belief that de-extinction is possible, right? Plenty of people look at us and laugh at us that, say that's kind of silly how why would you do that and then they spend some time understanding the brain trust that is the wonderful colleagues they get to work with who are trying to tackle this and they're like oh wow i mean if you put that kind of talent behind what we're doing you can do a lot and so i think that's uh, that to me is the biggest part and again i'm not involved in every aspect of of our business decisions i'm much more on the, the, the computational and science side but it's a really fascinating set of species now because you have a large mammal. Um, you have a marsupial, the thylacine is a marsupial, and then you have a bird. And so the, the breadth of challenges we're trying to tackle creates a really unique opportunity to leverage technologies to develop for one to accelerate the other. So that wasn't my last question, of course. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of collaboration because of what you're doing, but also I have to ask you like, is there a little competition between the Dodo people and the mammoth people? I mean, I'm sure some of what they do overlaps, but do they see a little bit of a race? Uh, absolutely. All right. Everyone <laughs> wants to be the, so we have species leads who are responsible for our species and everyone wants I would love to be the first person to lead a project to de-extinct an animal. And, but, but there's a really healthy uh, competition between everyone because we have you know, multiple of the species teams interact with each other on a regular basis. There are genome engineers that help on, on both sides or multiple species. Um, my team, so my team is the computational sciences team, and, and my team members work across all of our species. And so we get to see really interesting synergies between the needs of, of 
the mammoth and the thylacine, for example, or the dodo and the thylacine. And so there's there's a cooperation, if you will, where everyone would would love to be the first one, and we all need to get there for to prove that this is is really possible. Yeah, very nice, Titus. This has been a blast for me. Uh, I've learned a ton today. I'm sure everybody listening when they hear it will have learned a lot as well. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. My pleasure. All right. How cool is that? But wait, there's more. In my next episode, we're blasting off into the future. I'll be talking to Mark Herbert from Varda Space Industries about manufacturing drugs in space. At this point, I usually ask my listeners to share the podcast if they enjoy it, which I do appreciate. Today, I want you to think about someone at your company who's a good storyteller and can enlighten the whole community on some aspect of the life science space. Could be AI-related, a novel business model, anything of interest to the broad community. Let me know who I should talk to at chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. I'll be back soon with another episode. Bye-bye.